For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Caregiver Dave Celebrity Segment. I'm excited to welcome the program Caregiver Dave to Sandy. Dave, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic as well. And our guest today is a very famous director and uh, creator, Kim Bass. And he's going to talk about Tyson's run and much, much more. Kim, thanks for stopping by. How are you? Hey, thank you for having me. And I'm doing just fine. It's opening day for uh, my film, Tyson's Run, nationwide. So I'm having a good day. It definitely seems like a good day. It's a great story. But let's start out. Did you always want to be a director, creator, things like that growing up when you were a kid? I always wanted to be a storyteller and, and be a filmmaker, even though at the time I was so young, I didn't exactly know what that was. Uh, my grandfather took me to my first film when I was seven years old. We actually got on a city bus and drove out of our neighborhood and went to a kind of a nicer neighborhood to a theater called the Uptown Theater in Utica, New York, which is in upstate New York. And I watched my first movie, which was a Disney film titled Miracle of the White Stallions. And I was so impacted by the experience that when I got home that evening, I told my mother that I wanted to do that. And who, who makes movies? And she told me it, it was done in a place far away called Hollywood by some people there. And I said to my mother, I said, I think they're the magic people. And when I grow up, I'm going to be one of the magic people. That's great. <laughs> We're talking about Mike Tyson, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly. Not exactly. Oh, so, so, but so he always, so when you think <laughs> about things, Kim, in, in so many ways, getting your dreams to come true, where do you think that process started after you said, this is what I want to do? How did that process start and continue? Tell us. Well, truth be told, I've always been sort of a kid who focused on things obsessively and it's something I just wanted to do. And I was fortunate enough to have loved ones around me who encouraged me uh, and, and more specifically my mother. She said, not only is that what you want to do, she goes, it's exactly what you're going to do. And you need to believe that and move forward toward that goal. And she told me that when I was seven years old. And so the thought of being a filmmaker or being a storyteller, being in, in the, the business never, ever left my head. And so I, I give my mom a lot of credit, but certainly a lot of those around me who also encouraged me and supported me as I just sort of put one foot in front of the other, always staying focused on, on that uh, goal. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So tell us about Tyson's story. Tyson's run. Tyson's run, Dave. But I want to go, I want to jump a little bit before I get that. Let's get continuing about this. So where do you think that big break came? And talk a little bit about the whole big break process. That so you started working hard and the opportunities came. What do you think were the things that got you the opportunities to create these amazing shows that really just made your career such a success? Well, the first break that I had, so to speak, was actually in Japan, where I was living and studying martial arts and teaching at a private language college, teaching English conversation. And I met a man named Junichi Takahashi, who was an agent and a producer, who had me audition for a television show. And I actually got the gig, and I ended up on a Japanese television show, and then mm -hmm. I did other shows and got into movies there and stage. And so at that point I was actually 
either on stage or on camera. And I thought, you know, maybe that would get me back to the States where I could do acting work here in Hollywood. And I ended up in a movie with Jackie Chan called The Protector. And after that, I decided to move back to the United States thinking, okay, this, I, the door is open. I'm going to come back to the US after being in Japan for five years and having done a movie with Jackie Chan, all's going to be well. Well, the problem is I'm not a good actor. As a matter of fact, I'm terrible at it. So that wasn't, that wasn't going to work out too well. And I turned my attention to writing thinking that perhaps I could write something that I could be in since no one would really cast me in anything. And I wrote my first screenplay, finished it on a Friday. Uh, I'm sorry, finished it on a Thursday, gave it to a producer on a Friday and ended up optioning that screenplay to a production company on Tuesday. And I, that began my writing career. Wow. And you know, when you talk about the writing career in, in so many ways, and uh, it's something that you figured out your stuff. You figured out your secret sauce. You liked the industry. You loved the acting business. You just, you, it wasn't acting. So what do you think makes you such a really good writer and creator? Well, I don't know if I label myself as a really good writer, but I like to write stories and I've stumbled my way into some modest degree of success, I suppose. But I liked telling stories even when I was a kid. You know, I grew up in a house with a brother and four sisters who are all very funny, who are all very creative. So, you know, we would entertain, you know, each other. As a matter of fact, it's it's funny that I'm the one who's quote unquote, the filmmaker in the family because uh, we got our first little Super 8 camera when we were all very young. And for Christmas, I fell asleep. And when I woke up, my brothers and sisters had made a movie, which <laughs> I got to watch called Christmas Rally. And so they always played with the camera. I never actually touched it much, but I always, again, wanted to be be a be a filmmaker. But it was always my burning burning desire to, you know, put something on the big screen and have that same experience I had that first time when my grandfather took me to. The so when you optioned your first writing deal, what did it, what was the show that you ended up doing first writing? Well, that was a, a screenplay, and it was entitled Popsicle Soldiers an action piece and it was actually optioned three times and so that sort of started to prime the pump certainly financially where i could you know pay my rent and, and stay in hollywood and while that was under option i ended up being introduced to damon wayans from in living color fame and my my wife and kids and we began a relationship and soon after meeting him, I ended up writing two sketches for him to perform on, not necessarily the news, the HBO show. And then from that, we did a music video for Motown. And uh, soon after that, I was in the Warner Brothers Writers Workshop uh, with uh, a writing partner, Donald Lamoureux. And while being in that Warner Brothers Writers Workshop for sitcoms, I got the call from In Living Color to come and pitch. I pitched and next thing you know, I'm a staff writer on In Living Color, nominated for an Emmy and we did you know, some pretty good work over there and for two, two seasons. And once that was over, I was offered an overall deal at Fox uh, Television at the studio level and did some work there on a show called True Colors, which was under my deal. Okay. And I created Sister Sister and then created Keenan and Kel and it all, the ball just started rolling. So, you know, meeting, uh, you said Damon, is that who? Yes. Yeah, Damon Williams, yes. How did that, how did that story of meeting, because you know how this industry works. It's all about the specific meeting. We all have talent. It's just meeting the right person, right place, right time. How did that, how did that develop that you got to meet him? Well, I, I optioned my screenplay, uh, as I said, to a producer, and that producer was uh, an acquaintance of Damon's manager, Eric Gold, at the time. And apparently he had a conversation, just you know, found this new writer. He wrote a terrific script. We just optioned it. We intend to make this movie. And he said, really? And I got a call and saying, hey, well, maybe he's got some other good ideas. And Damon read the script and then wanted to talk to me about a film he was writing, a screenplay that he was writing. So he actually asked for the meeting. And once we met, we um, you know, got along and the rest as it. And then being part of In Living Color, that's gotta be amazing, right? How many superstars did you run into 
and in a living color? Well, you know, it's uh, we we had some talented folks. I mean, Damon was there, Jim Carrey, of course. Yeah. Uh, J Lo and uh, Tommy Davidson, yeah. and uh, you know, we just had so many folks who came through there. Uh, Jamie Fox, and so, and sometimes, uh, let's see, Whoopi Goldberg came on to guest star, and so we had a pretty good time. You know, Bruce Willis came to the set <laughs> because he was getting ready to do a movie with Damon, so. It was it was interesting, you know. People think comedy is easy. It's it's a lot of hard work. And the show, the exec producer of the show, of course, um, was Damon's brother, Keenan. Yeah. And you know, he yeah. ran a pretty tight ship, and we, you know, we had a lot of fun writing a lot of good things with a lot of good writers on the show. So I was just fortunate to be among them. One of the best comedy things that really changed comedy in so many ways, and it really brought, I guess, the suburban too urban in loving color with yeah, that's a good way, good way to put it that's absolutely right. i mean because i mean i grew up and i'm like wow and then you just really said never thought of these different things and fox shows developed i uh interviewed the voice of bart simpson uh nancy cartwright a couple months ago and just think about that that fox team wow you know of the shows on fox yeah, a lot of married with yeah. children in living color the Simpsons, and then what the shows you developed after. I mean, it's just like that Fox time was just a special time because it changed television. And I wish that they show more of that, right? Give a little bit more of a highlight how it changed television. Yeah, it was, uh, well, they, they took a chance on a lot of things that some of the other networks weren't taking chances on. And so it, it paid off and it, it was a good breeding ground for many of us. So I appreciate you know that experience. Absolutely. All right, Dave. So we're back to you in this. So basically, I am a huge fan of In Living Color. He created other shows. We're going to get into Tyson's run because I love the whole story of autism because I am a former educator that worked in the autism community. So I'm really excited about uh, talking more about that. But I'm going to pass it back to you, Dave, for any other questions you have for Kim, and then we'll get into Tyson's run. Well, you're very successful, obviously. Um, and some people believe that success is a lot of hard work. Some people think it's just being in the right place at the right time. Some people think it's a combination of the two. What do you attribute your, your success to? And, and have you exceeded your goals and expectations of where you would be at this age? Well, uh, I think it is a combination of both. You have to be, opportunities I believe are, are surrounding people all the time, but you have to be prepared to take advantage of the opportunities when they avail themselves to you. So, and, and being prepared means having done the work so that you walk in the door, you know, uh, ready to go. You got to be able to hit the ground running because, you know, the entertainment business, you know, that second word business is, is sort <laughs> of the powerful part, right? And you got to be ready to do some business. And I feel that you meet some good people, but you got to bring something that is valuable to the process. And I've been fortunate enough, enough to meet some really good people and get some help along the way but I feel that I've had some, some maybe not great ideas, but some good ideas that others saw value in. And therefore, the opportunities um, were sort of presented to me. And then, but you got to be ready to, like I said, to go, to go right through that door when it opens. Now, the story of Tyson's Run, you're the director. Did you write this as well, Tyson's Run, or just direct? I did. I wrote the screenplay, directed it, and I'm one of the oh. Okay, so tell us how you came up with the story for this. So I was, one morning I was at uh, my son's uh, elementary school and there was a young boy who sort of lagged behind when the other boys dashed off running across the, you know, the field at the school. And I asked him why he didn't keep running and he said that he... He said, I know I'm fast, but all the other boys are super fast. And so he doesn't like, he said he didn't like to run it anymore because they, he always felt left behind. He felt dejected. He felt a distance from the other kids. And so that touched me and that started the, to percolate in my mind. And then as time went on, I started looking at what was going on in society where everyone's fighting for their mm -hmm. rights uh, to be included to not be discriminated against. And so that nugget of an idea grew into what now is Tyson's run. And so the, the, talking about 
connecting autism to this? Was that story, how's that bring the, the autism community into this as well? Well, I have friends who have some children who are on the spectrum. And I, so I had a sort of a firsthand view at sort of the challenges that they were going through and their concerns about whether or not their children would be included into, in society and how they would be treated at school. And so I thought that autism itself would be a vehicle that I could utilize to tell a more universal story because it's, it's so prevalent in society and the parents uh, feel so challenged and sometimes feel so uh, on their own, uh, separate from other folks in society. And so I thought that would be a good vehicle by which we could explore inclusion, explore acceptance, explore determination and forgiveness and, and the family dynamics. Uh, you know, I have a grandson who's uh, on the spectrum. He's Asperger's. And unfortunately, not a good story with him. He got involved with the wrong kids at, at you know, the age of uh, teenage hood and he's in prison right now, you know, serving a 10 to 15 year prison sentence, but I'm encouraged because, you know, he's very smart and he's done, you know, doing school and uh, getting a college degree and working on, you know, understanding why he's there. And, and he's exactly where he belongs because he needs that structured environment. And this may be the thing that saved him. Well, I'm sorry to hear what happened to him. And obviously it's because others took advantage of the fact that he yeah. isn't adept at picking up on social cues and, right. and who's lying to him, who's telling him the truth, because they're, you know, what I have found is many on the autism spectrum are so honest, they're blatantly honest and they're trusting and they don't understand that someone who calls themselves a friend is actually manipulating them. Right. And then that's that's a sad thing. And he probably, you know, ended up where he ended up based upon someone else's bad acts and not his own and just trusting and going along with, you know, his friends. Yeah, yeah. that's too, so tell us the premise of the of the movie now without giving away any of the major. So, yes. Yeah, so Tyson's run is a story about a 15 year old boy who wants to help heal the rift between his mother and father. And he believes the way to do that is to become a champion. And the reason he thinks about it in those terms is because his father was a football champion and his father is the winningest football coach in the state uh, of Georgia. This is uh, of course fiction, but in the state of Georgia, one of the winningest football coaches in the country. And so he and his father, you know, don't have a strong connection because the father has never accepted the fact that he has, quote unquote, this type of son, a son that he can't vicariously live through, uh, live out his dreams through because the father's uh, career was cut short through a bad knee injury in a bowl game in college. So this boy feels that there's a strain in the family and he thinks it might be because of him, not so much his fault, but because of him. And through his autistic mind, he sees a simple solution. And that solution is if I become a champion, my father will feel better about me and therefore better about my mother and better about the family and we will be made whole. And so that's sort of his, his thinking on that and mm -hmm. he's not going to be deterred from his mission to make his family whole. Sounds like a great story. Absolutely. What has it's been the feedback cool. so far of people screening the film? What do you uh, The feedback has been, tremendous we've gotten endorsements from many of the special needs community many of the faith uh, community because it's it is a, a film of faith it's a film of belief it's a film of forgiveness and love so those are universal themes but sometimes they are lacking in certain other stories and I'll, i'd like to share one particular story with you when we test screen the film uh, in texas and houston uh at the end of the screening the test screening and this was before the film was was you know fully realized but it was good enough to gauge an audience's uh, experience when they watched it and there was a father and a, with a a daughter who was maybe 14 or 15 years old with down syndrome and he was in the lobby and he ushered his daughter into the ladies room and then he knew i had made the film because i had been introduced at at the end of the screening and he walked over to me and he said i'd like to shake your hand and thank you 
for making that film. He said, watching it makes me understand that I need to be a better father to my daughter. And I just want to thank you for that. And he hugged me and then cried all the time. And wow, just doesn't get any better than that. It does not. And I was so powerful. And I thought if that little girl's life changes for the better for, you know, my partner, John Capetta, who runs Planet Nine Productions, green lighting this movie, then we will have done some good service to this world. That's what I thought at that moment. Absolutely. And when is the film out? Is it out yet? Ready to go? Today's the day. It opens today nationwide. Right. So, and I'm hoping that folks go out and support it. We're across the country and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of theaters. And uh, we're hoping wow. that, that folks uh, go on out and, and, and find this film in their local theaters and they will not be dis disappointed. I think they're going to leave inspired and feel as if they you know, watched a family go through something that many families go through and come out the other side in a way that can inspire at least conversation. And my hope is that the takeaway is we all need to be a little more inclusive, a little more loving, a little more understanding to our fellow human beings, whether they be in this country, this in your particular neighborhood or halfway across the world. All right. My wife and I go to the movies every week. Uh, we'll check it out. Uh, we should bring our tissues with us. <laughs> well, let's just say this. If I've done my job right, and there are those who say that I have, you are going to laugh, you're going to cry, and then at the end, you're probably going to clap. That's that. Tyson's run. Got it. Yeah. So, so Dave, you, Dave is a caregiver and he has a question. I think the relationship of what you're doing with the autism community yeah. is fantastic. But go ahead, Dave, with your question. Yeah, so my wife had a stroke 25 years ago in the middle of our marriage. We've married 47 years, just out of nowhere. And, you know, it threw us for a loop for a couple of years, a grief process. Finally, we reinvented ourselves. I became Dave, the caregiver's caregiver. Uh, been on 52 TV shows, speaking on stages like Harvard and NASDAQ, Carnegie Hall, all over the country. And my wife reinvented herself. You know, she lost her speech, became paralyzed on one side. So she decided she's going to do everything she did before. She's a gourmet cook. She's an interior decorator. I mean, just a cross between Martha Stewart and Wonder Woman. And so I've been talking to people because 30% of caregivers die before their loved ones do just from the stress. And so I'm, my, my mission is to help other people prepare for this. I wasn't prepared. You know, everyone is going to be either a caregiver or they're going to need a caregiver. Right. So it's inevitable. My question to you is, uh, has caregiving touched your life? Um, special needs is certainly a huge caregiving area. And you're telling the story. Good for you. Uh, what personal experience do you have? Wow, that's a, a great question. And I, <laughs> I love the way you summed it up. We are absolutely either going to need care or we're going to have to give care. And to be a little bit personal, I and my lovely lady, we've just returned from the East Coast where we spent six months giving care to my mother, who is oh, wow. uh, in her mid who had extensive uh, cancer surgery. Mm, and I also sorry. have a sister who has multiple sclerosis and is completely, oh. um, she's uh, completely disabled and 24 wow. hour care. So we were able to take, spend the last six months helping um, my other siblings give care to those in our family. But we grew up uh, knowing about that. Um, our father had an adult care home. That was his business. So he had a building full of people who needed to be cared for. And that was the one thing my father, <laughs> he, he had a big heart and he had a good business sense, but he had a big heart and he put all of those people first. And so I saw it on a daily basis that, that he, people need care and they need those around them who, you know, have it in their hearts to do well by them because people can be so easily discarded, you know? And so I, I have a long history of, of caregiving in my family. So I appreciate Good for you. I appreciate what you're doing you know, for your wife. And you said, what did you say across between Martha Stewart and Wonder Woman? And Wonder Woman. <laughs> and that's, a, that's a terrific thing. And that means that you make the adjustment, but you don't, hold her back, let her flourish, let her fly as high as, you know, her yeah. wings will allow her to fly, even though they're different wings than she had before. Yeah. I don't treat her as disabled. You know, her mother would always say, Oh no, no, let me get that for you. I said, no, let her get it. 
you're going to create an invalid. I'm going to create an independent person. Right. That's, that's right. That's right. She might have challenges, but that we all have challenges. It might be a little harder for her to reach something, but sometimes it's harder for somebody over to bend over and reach something. So right. You're right. You, you don't you love them. You support people, but you certainly don't coddle them to the point where they just sit and everything is done for them because that's a, in my opinion is a disservice let, yeah. let them go that and that's the theme of of tyson's run allow every person to be the best person they can be to fulfill their dreams to the best of their ability without prejudice without barricades being put in front of them whether they're barricades put up by loved ones thinking i'll keep them from hurting themselves right that yeah. too. so let them go yeah be there to catch them if they fall. And that's what I believe prison is doing for my grandson. He's going to come out uh, a much better person, uh, perhaps getting in prison, but he couldn't get it home from his parents. Because, you know, it takes patience to be a parent to a special needs kid and love. And, and you got to just, uh, you know, have that mindset. And, uh, you know, it really wasn't there. It's a good story that sometimes doesn't work out in prison. Military could be one way as well. So, Kim, yeah. again, the movies out in theaters across the country is the website the best place to find out where it's playing or just to search tyson's run on google what's your take well you can go to tyson's run tyson tysonrun.com tysonsrun.com and then that will link you to the nearest theater uh to your own particular city or your home or your neighborhood or you can just google it tyson's run movie and, and we're spelling tyson how Tyson's T Y S O N S run uh, apostrophe S right apostrophe Tyson's yeah. run or but the website would be Tyson'sRun.com right Tyson'sRun.com that's exactly yeah. right and that will tell you everything you need to know about the picture and it will tell you where you can find it and I really hope people support support the film and it's not about putting money you know back in someone's pocket it's about uh, being able to make other movies so we can tell, you know, other right. good stories and, and great. Uh, you know, be able you to, you know, I wonder, I wonder if Mike Tyson is on the autism spectrum. <laughs> I never okay. considered that. Okay. I don't know. I bet, um, that's, that's probably another, another interview, but just thought interview. and see, he probably has met Mike Tyson. I get, I bet you, you have Kim, right? Have you ever met Mike Tyson? Oh, you know, I, I, I've never met him. But I remember on In Living Color, we did a sketch yes, about him. I remember it. We did. And we checked with him and he thought it was funny because <laughs> nobody wanted to. So you had to you had to reach out and that thing. So <laughs> other projects going on right now, Kim? I know this is your baby right now, this movie. Uh, but do you have anything else going on that you want to tell your fans? Absolutely. So this is this is the one right now, but we expect to be in theaters in either August or sep beginning of September with uh, a new film called Headshop, which is completely different than this film. It will also open nationwide. And it's a wonderful story. It's kind of an urban setting fairy tale. And so that's uh, coming out it's in post-production. We're just finishing it up right now. So they'll be able to see that in theaters, hopefully just uh, four or five, uh, five or six months from now and developing uh, several other projects. One we hope to shoot uh, maybe this year called Mother Johnson's Miracle Christmas. And it's a wonderful Christmas story. And then to go opposite of that, there's a campy horror thriller called A Lawyer, The Devil, Three Priests, and a Nun, which <laughs> is is close to being greenlit as well. Oh, you got a lot going. That's great. And uh, we appreciate you, him coming on the show. Thanks again, Dave. And again, this was the Caregiver Dave Celebrity segment on the Neil Haley Show. Guys, take care. Hey, guys, welcome again to the Neil Haley Show special edition of Rural Doc Alan Lindemann's uh, podcast. And this is going to provide so much information for soon to be mothers and the process that they go through and also family members that worry about when we get to that pregnancy stage but also doc allen talks other things helping people in medicine to really understand their choice and it's their choice to really speak up with their healthcare provider they don't they don't become this where i'm going to listen to my healthcare provider without getting second third opinions and really providing the information and being knowledgeable, be ready. And Doc Allen 
thanks for stopping by again. Thank you so much for inviting me again. We're here today to talk about the difference between uh, hypertension and eclampsia. Yes, so the first question I have is, what is the difference between high blood pressure and preeclampsia? Well, preeclampsia can precede pregnancy. Um, preeclampsia does not precede a pregnancy. It's strictly pregnancy-related. Uh, blood pressure, of course, is a risk for eclampsia and preeclampsia. So there is a relationship. But the nice thing about uh, hypertension is that they don't turn all those other things positive. You know, you don't get the hemoglobin of 15. You don't get abnormal liver functions. You don't get um, protein in the urine. You don't get hyperreflex. You get none of the things that you get. I had years ago a lady who came to see me. She was in her early 20s and her initial blood pressure was 150 over 90. And I thought, what am I going to do with that? So I gave her some albumin and we watched her pressure and nothing happened. And the only thing that happened was her pressure went down to 130 over 80. She delivered a term and she delivered a nine pound, two ounce boy. So one of the reasons that we don't get beta blockers in pregnancy and, and other medications is that beta blockers are said to restrict the growth, but this one was not restricted. And um, she also wasn't in the hospital. I mean, as far as the delivery. So what is the difference between preeclampsia and eclampsia? Uh, eclampsia is a seizure. Uh, so you have the preeclampsia, you're sick with it for a while. You get too sick, you get your blood pressure elevated, you get your uh, liver functions elevated, you get your platelets low, and your hemoglobin is concentrated. So. Um, that what they don't do, like I said, uh, the women who have the um, clamps CF are the ones who have the biggest problems. And they're the ones who have the seizures. And my sister actually got clamps and I was not taking care of her. And incidentally, I've never had a lady with clamps never had anybody seized on my watch. I was happy for that. And I think it's because in the first place, I was aware of the fact that the postpartum time is the time that can be the worst. Can I have, can, can uh, someone have eclampsia when the baby's born? So the baby's already born and they can get eclampsia. Is that, can they? Absolutely. And those are the bad kinds. Those are the ones that don't live. Partly it's because the people who are watching them aren't watching them because the baby is born. Uh, I think we've given you a couple of examples on our website, but one is Lauren, 34-year-old um, Caucasian nurse who died five hours after she gave birth and she had terrible blood pressure. She also had right up her brain by about pain she kept on giving her more epidural to deal with the pain. And then there's another one, a lady of color, a resident, and she died two or three days after her liver ruptured. So you're doing the treatment for the most part with for preeclampsia and sometimes hypertension. There's apresoline and that is a dilator of blood vessels. Very great information, but people, there's a blog you can read, there's a lot of information, where can they go and really learn about the process and even prepare themselves for when they are expecting. So where's the best place? Well, rural.allen.com. 
We appreciate another great World Doc Allen podcast. Enjoyed the conversation with you and look forward to next week again, okay? Thank you so much for calling me on. You're welcome. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. We're back to the Neil Haley Show, and oh, I put my education hat back on, and oh, we're going to talk reading, and oh, I'm a former uh, developmental therapist, birth to three, then I've done and taught reading for X amount of years, so my guest today, Lori Lynn, is an, is an early childhood educator, and she really tries to raise a reader, and we're going to talk about today, top four things families can do to raise a reader. Lori Lynn, thanks for stopping by. How are you? Thank you so much for having me, Neil. I appreciate it. And you know, I understand the importance of reading and especially teaching reading for X amount of years. And I think we miss a, a boat in a lot of ways of immersing young readers, don't we? We do. And it's sometimes just lack of time. And it's sometimes just lack of understanding how simple it can really be, actually. Exactly. How simple and how you're able to do it. So... Let's talk about four things families should do to raise a reader. And what age are we talking right now? I'm talking, my expertise is, is preschool through, well, even ages two through seven-ish. Yeah, preschool uh, through. I worked, worked with those youngers, especially when I was a developmental therapist, birth to three. And I also worked in the uh, age group of, you know, in teaching sometimes those younger kids when I would do substitute teaching. So I understand as an elementary ed teacher. So what's the first thing? Well, the first thing is to let them see you read, right? Children need to understand the purpose for things. We all need to understand the purpose um, for when we're learning things. Uh, I train teachers as well. And when you ask yourselves, why aren't teachers picking up on the things we're learning? It's because they don't really know why and they don't see a purpose for it. And so you really have to be good about showing teachers a purpose for what they're learning and to change their behaviors. And um, it's the same for young children. They need to see a purpose for reading. And the easiest way is just talk about what you're reading. How many times do we read a recipe and or the back of a um, food container to see what the ingredients are? Let them see you talk about it and say, I'm reading the ingredients because um, I want to know what's in here, so I'm feeding you healthy things. <laughs> no. That's okay. No, that's not a problem at all. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and um, yeah, so that's really important to do. And also, I'm just going to kind of move down here. That's okay. I'm, I'm babysitting my grand dog, actually, and he's a 100-pound golden, and he's big. And so he's not quite used to my house, but he is on us actually. But so that's the important thing. So like when you're at the grocery store, talk about the things you're choosing and why, and yeah. let them, let the children see you have a purpose for reading and let them see you read books. Um, and, and those other things that you, magazines, newspapers, things online, of course, but it's better to minimize as much online as you can, because we get enough of that. So just to think about, you know, when you're washing your clothes, what are the ingredients um, or what are the materials in your clothes and why are you washing them a certain way? Those things you do every day, just let them see you um, read and have a purpose for that reading. So, so true. Let them see you read. So what's yeah. number two? Number two is pointing out the print in your environment, which is a, a step beyond just um, letting them see you read it. That's what you do when you can do that in the car, right? Just pointing out the stop sign. Children learn how to write S-T-O-P pretty quickly if you're pointing it out to them and say, oh, that's stop and see those letters S-T-O-P. Those together say the word stop. And my boys actually learned to be backseat drivers by reading the signs. <laughs> they would see speed limit 45 and they'd always look to see if I was matching that, right? So I'm like, well, I guess they're they're reading their environmental print. That's a good thing and keeping me um, um, honest. And so things like Target, Walmart, you know, when children say, hey, that's Target, really say, you are reading. Let them know you're reading. And they'll go, oh, that's reading. Absolutely, that's reading. Because so many children say, I can't read. But you know that says Target. How do you know that? Well, because of the red line. Yeah, exactly. so all those environmental print things. And when children begin to see themselves as readers, then they gain that confidence in their ability. And anytime we gain confidence, we're more brave. And we're braver. And we are motivated to try more. So that's number two. 
Um, number three is, of course, then you read to your child. And don't let that, I, I always tell families, don't let that overwhelm you because my saying is one book is enough. One book is truly enough if you do it every night. Now, it's going to probably lead to more books, which is wonderful. But how many parents are working, you know, sometimes six to six and they come home and they have to cook meals and then they're thinking, oh, my gosh, I need to read books. And it's it's another chore. So if you can relax into the fact that it's about the interaction with your young child that closeness, the joy, the comfort, the warmth they feel with you and a book um, to say that is hugely important to their motivation to read and their comfort in reading. So just pull them close, have a soft place to not only for you to breathe slowly, but for them to just take that breath and settle into a book. And um, it's an intimate conversation, right? Yes. Reading a book is an intimate conversation. And actually, speaking of conversations, this is another point that I actually should make five points, Neil, that I'm thinking about this, because just having conversations with your child is important uh, because people don't know this. I didn't know this till about six years ago, <coughs> that oral language is the basis of all early literacy. So talking to your child is actually helping them to be a good reader because it builds vocabulary, right? So the more vocabulary they have <clears throat> in there, in their brain, then the more they're going to be confident when they come across those words and know what they mean. All right. And number four. <laughs> and number four, uh, let's see, it's utilizing the power of music and that's why I wrote the book that I wrote, I'm a Pig. And the power of music is pretty well known, we, especially now with YouTube and, and uh, TikTok and all those. We see these elderly people with Alzheimer's that they forget lots of things. <clears throat> but when it comes to sitting down at the piano or hearing a song, they remember it, right? And everybody's always surprised. But there's, there's research behind that because the brain... And when you hear music, it involves all of the brain. Both sides of the brains are lit up. So music lights up our brain in ways that nothing else can. So my background is music. I was a music major for two years, and then I became an early childhood major. And it's perfect um, blending for me because in the early childhood classroom, I used my guitar and my music all the time, which is where I wrote most of my songs that are on my CD is in the classroom or <laughs> with, my, with my own children. And I saw in the classroom, <clears throat> when children would get a book that was based on a song, they were like, they weren't reading, typically reading, but if it was a book based on a song, they'd like, oh, I know that. And they'd pretend to read and feel really confident. <clears throat> awesome. Yeah. Where can people find information on you? Where can they go? <laughs> um, they can go to overallbuddies.com. And everything you need to know will be there. Um, my book, uh, my book is called I'm a Pig, and it's based on one of the most requested songs. And I did some really um, specific, intentional, early literacy things in there. And I always wished I could have done this in my 30s when I wrote that song. But a lot of life happened, and I'm actually a grandma at this point. And the good news is... I know so much more about what makes a quality book than I did when I was 30 because of all my experience and trainings myself. And so it's really a good thing. And there's purpose in life, right? For every, to everything, there is a season. And now this book I wrote has so much intentional quality, early literacy strategies in it, but it's also really fun. And so that's something you can find on my website as well as my YouTube videos that have won awards, which is nice. And um, the yeah, so I'm a Pig was a international songwriting competition finalist. And so I just got in this only about seven months before COVID. So you know what oh. that means. <laughs> so it was going really strong for about seven months and then whoop, like every other business, but we're getting back to it. All right. Okay, we're um so I appreciate you coming by and thanks for coming on the show. 
I'm so sorry. Thank you so much, Neil. You're welcome. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show, and I'm really excited about this guest. An inspiring story. Carlin Maddox is going to talk to us about Alzheimer's and some of the story. How are you today, sir? Thanks for stopping by. I'm sorry? Thanks for stopping by. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing fine. Thank you. I misunderstood you. Okay, no worries. Let's talk about the backstory on yourself, first of all, you and your wife, Martha. Yeah, Neil, um, um, my wife was uh, heavy into politics. Uh, we're, we live in St. Petersburg, Florida, and uh, she was heavy into politics and civic affairs, high energy person. Uh, I had a, an entrepreneurial business magazine in this market, uh, and so that consumed a lot of my energy as well. The, um, the, the, it was in, in September of 1997, when Martha was 50 years old, that she was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's, awesome. and that's that's a young young age. Um, I was fifty two, and we, our three children were still in high school and college. Oh my god! And uh, I don't think I had even heard of Alzheimer's at that stage. If I had, no. I hadn't paid any attention to it. And um, so, when we got the diagnosis. Our world didn't turn upside down. It just imploded before us. I mean, we were just completely lost. We felt like we had been thrown out of a a plane 10,000 feet up and just had nothing to hold on to but ourselves. Um, And and so it's obviously a a very, very disturbing kind of event in our lives. Most disturbing event we've ever had, I ever hoped to have. And... um, so, yeah, and one of the things I've, a lot of people have asked me, said, well, did you see any signs of this before you got the diagnosis? And um, Martha, uh, I, I, I thought about it, and she, had, she was running, a year before the diagnosis, she was running for an open seat in the Florida State Legislature. She had been on the St. Petersburg City Council back in the 1980s. And, um, and she, she was uh, making a presentation to a group called the Tiger Bay Club, Suncoast Tiger Bay Club. That was the most important event that she was attending. Uh, she, along with three other candidates. And I'd seen Martha in these kinds of events before, and she handled them very calmly, coolly, being able to answer the questions and the like. And uh, this day, she had to ask for every question to be repeated. Oh my this, was about a, this was about a year before her diagnosis. How old, was she how old again? Was she I'm sorry? When her diagnosis, how old was she? 50. Oh, my God. Yeah. How many people were out there that are diagnosed that young? Alzheimer's. Uh, the, the Alzheimer's Association uh, um, indicates about six million in the U.S. Oh my God! Uh, they um, they think there are probably a lot more, but they haven't been diagnosed. Um, and when you start counting the caregivers who are taking care of their loved ones, unpaid caregivers, another eleven million people are being affected by this. And oh my God. So this is just such a terrible thing. And at that age, how is she doing now if she's diagnosed with 50? Uh, well, this went on. Uh, we lived with this for 17 years. Martha died in 2014. Oh, my God. Um, her last uh, six years oh. were, were in a nursing home. And uh, at that point, she was not able to walk, not able to talk, oh not able to take care of herself. And, and just had to have just 24-7 care. I'm so sorry to hear that. So what is yeah. your ultimate goal of going out and doing this and talking about your, your wife and what's happened? Well, I mean, there's, there's a lot of people who uh, I'm finding a lot of people either directly or indirectly are being affected here. And um and it's, well, cancer is, a, is obviously a tragic kind of a disease, uh, but this is the, uh, this disease so far is one that they have not found any cure for, any kind of 
uh, way to get back uh, to where they were. They may be able to delay the symptoms, but have not been able able to find a cure for it. It's it's a very tough situation for a lot of people. And I never knew that young and those signs and those signs we have to look out for. And, uh, you know, you they don't talk about it. You think of someone in their 65, 70 or older to do this. And man, what you went through and you're a caregiver, as I'm sure you've been on um, my client's show, Caregiver Dave Nassani's caregiving show. I'm sure you've been a guest on his. If you've not, I definitely will connect you. He's a good friend of mine and he's my client and uh, his whole thing is caregiving. But what you did as a caregiver, you should be commended and to to educate people like you are is fantastic. Where is the best place people can find info on you? Well, the, the, um, I was fortunate to be able to uh, ultimately hire some caregivers to come in during the day while I, while I was continuing to run my magazine. Uh, then I would, I would be Martha's caregiver the rest of the night and into the morning. Oh my God. I was definitely asking you that. I said, where can people check you out? Where's the information that you can get on what you're doing, Carl? Well, the there there today there are a lot of good caregiver guidebooks that you can go like to Amazon. Or, okay. But also the um, Alzheimer's Association. Okay. Uh, they are doing a much better job today of providing information, as well as providing support groups. Uh, in, in most community, in many communities, uh, I, I, when Martha was diagnosed, I couldn't find a support group. Do you have? A, do you have? A, do you have a website that people can find information on you as well, Carl? Say again. Do you have a website. Yeah, I've I've been posting a blog since nineteen nineteen since uh, two thousand fifteen, and. Um, uh, and so you go to www.carlinmaddox, carlin at maddox.com, C-A-R-L-E-N at carlin maddox, M-A-D-D-U-X. A lot of people misspell my name, so I'm spelling it for you. And you go, and go to my blog, and it goes back to 2015, and I've share our experiences. I've interviewed a number of people who are going through the same thing. And just um, I've interviewed um, several neurologists uh, in terms of uh, their take on this and how they deal with it. And uh, so, yeah, that's that's one source that you can get to. Um, I've written a book about this uh, that I call A Path Revealed. How Hope, Love, and Joy Found Us Deep in a Maze Called Alzheimer's. It can be found on uh, Amazon. Great. Um, and and it, um, it just, I just I go through our experience. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a guidebook. Uh, it's, it just shares our odyssey that we went through um, and the, just the volatility of what we had to go through. Um, and, and some of the tough things and some of the good things. Uh, uh, you, you see this picture behind me, Neil, the um, two years into Martha's diagnosis, after her diagnosis, uh, our sister-in-law invited Martha to join her in a watercolor painting class, and she never had done that before. I'd never done it. She's always been an outdoors girl, tennis and whatever, jogging and the like. Uh, um, but she really got into it, and this is one of her paintings. There's another painting that I call her self-portrait that is my favorite. Uh, it's, and it just that really restored her confidence. That's a great. It restored my confidence, and just that was really important to find that kind of an outlet. Well, you're doing such tremendous work, sir, and I appreciate you coming back home. Okay. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to The Neil Haley Show, and oh, I put my education hat back on, and oh, we're going to talk reading, and oh, I'm a former uh, developmental therapist, birth to three, then I've done and taught reading for X amount of years. So my guest today, Lori Lynn, is an, is an early childhood educator, and she really tries to raise a reader, and we're going to talk about today 
top four things families can do to raise a reader. Lori Lynn, thanks for stopping by. How are you? Thank you so much for having me, Neil. I appreciate it. And you know, I understand the importance of reading and especially teaching reading for X amount of years. And I think we miss a, a boat in a lot of ways of immersing young readers, don't we? We do. And it's sometimes just lack of time and it's sometimes just lack of understanding how simple it can really be, actually. Exactly. How simple and how you're able to do it. So let's talk about four things families should do to raise a reader. And what age are we talking right now? I'm talking, my expertise is, is preschool through, well, even ages two through seven-ish. Yeah. Preschool. Uh, I worked, worked with those youngers, especially when I was a developmental therapist, worked for three. And I also worked in the uh, age group of, you know, in teaching sometimes those younger kids when I would do substitute teaching. So I understand as an elementary ed teacher. So what's the first thing? Well, the first thing is to let them see you read, right? Children need to understand the purpose for things. We all need to understand the purpose um, for when we're learning things. Uh, I train teachers as well. And when you ask yourselves, why aren't teachers picking up on the things we're learning? It's because they don't really know why and they don't see a purpose for it. And so you really have to be good about showing teachers a purpose for what they're learning and to change their behaviors. And um, it's the same for young children. They need to see a purpose for reading. And the easiest way is just talk about what you're reading. How many times do we read a recipe and or the back of a um, food container to see what the ingredients are. Let them see you talk about it and say, I'm reading the ingredients because um, I want to know what's in here. So I'm feeding you healthy things. <laughs> no. That's okay. No, that's not a problem at all. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and um, yeah, so that's really important to do. And also, I'm just going to kind of move down here. That's okay. I'm, I'm babysitting my grand dog, actually. And he's a hundred pound golden and he's big. And so he's not quite used to my house, but he is on us actually. But so that's the important thing. So like when you're at the grocery store, talk about the things you're choosing and why, and yeah. let them let the children see you have a purpose for reading and let them see you read books. Um, and, and those other things that you, magazines, newspapers, things online, of course, but it's better to minimize as much online as you can, because we get enough of that. So just to think about, you know, when you're washing your clothes, what are the ingredients um, or what are the materials in your clothes and why are you washing them a certain way? Those things you do every day, just let them see you um, read and have a purpose for that reading. So, so true. Let them see you read. So what's yeah. number two? Number two is pointing out the print in your environment, which is a, a step beyond just um, letting them see you read it. That's what you do when you can do that in the car, right? Just pointing out the stop sign. Children learn how to write S-T-O-P pretty quickly if you're pointing it out to them and say, oh, that's stop and see those letters, S-T-O-P. Those together say the word stop. And my boys actually learned to be backseat drivers by reading the signs. <laughs> they would see speed limit 45 and they'd always look to see if I was matching that, right? So I'm like, well, I guess they're they're reading their environmental print. That's a good thing and keeping me um, um, honest. And so things like Target, Walmart, you know, when children say, hey, that's Target, really say, you are reading. Let them know you're reading. And they'll go, oh, that's reading. Absolutely, that's reading. Because so many children say, I can't read. But you know that says Target. How do you know that? Well, because of the red line. Yeah, exactly. so all those environmental print things. And when children begin to see themselves as readers, then they gain that confidence in their ability. And anytime we gain confidence, we're more brave. And we're braver. And we are motivated to try more. So that's number two. Um, number three is, of course, then you read to your child and don't let that. I, I always tell families, don't let that overwhelm you, because my saying is one book is enough. One book is truly enough if you do it every night. Now, it's going to probably lead to more books, which is wonderful. But how many parents are working, you know, sometimes six to six and they come home and they have to cook meals and then they're thinking, oh my gosh, I need to read books and it's, it's another chore. So if you can relax into the fact that it's about the interaction with your young child, 
that closeness, the joy, the comfort, the warmth they feel with you and a book um, to say that is hugely important to their motivation to read and their comfort in reading. So just pull them close, have a soft place to not only for you to breathe slowly, but for them to just take that breath and settle into a book. And um, it's an intimate conversation, right? Reading a book is an intimate conversation. And actually, speaking of conversations, this is another point that I actually should make five points, Neil, that I'm thinking about this, because just having conversations with your child is important uh, because people don't know this. I didn't know this till about six years ago, (coughs) that oral language is the basis of all early literacy. So talking to your child is actually helping. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.